With the psalmist, we declare our help is in the name of the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Welcome to worship at Fellowship Church this morning. Whether you come from near or far away, whether this is your first time or your hundredth time, whether you are a Spartan or a Wolverine, and no matter what spirit you come in this morning, all are welcomed here by God. Hear this call to worship as an invitation from Christ himself. In Christ, the God of heaven has made his home here on earth. Christ dwells among us and is one with us. Highest of all creation, he lives among the least. He journeys with the rejected and he welcomes the weary. So... Come now, all you who are thirsty, and drink from the water of life. Come now, all who are hungry, and be filled with good things. Come now, all who seek, and be warmed by the fire of his love. Let us stand and worship that love.
Even as we sing of God's faithfulness towards us, we are mindful of the fact that we uh, don't always respond in faith or faithfulness. Recognizing the brokenness of ourselves and the brokenness that exists in our world that is beyond us, let us pray a prayer of confession. Glory be to you, O God, whom we worship in awe and wonder. For you are the author of all beginnings and all that is pronounced good. In you, both day and night have purpose, both calm and storm have meaning. Open the eyes of our imagination that we may be ready to receive your gifts and discern your activity within our world. Merciful God, in baptism, you grafted us into the body of Christ, promising us forgiveness of sin and newness of life. But we fail to live as your forgiven people. We keep destructive habits, We hold grudges. We allow our past to hold us hostage. And we are reluctant to welcome newness. In your loving kindness, have mercy on us and free us from sin and all brokenness. Remind us of the promises that you have made to us in baptism so that we may live as your people, claimed in the waters of promise. In the name of Jesus, in whose baptism we too are baptized, we pray. Amen.
the great ironies of the gospel is that we experience new life in remembering who we are and from where we've come and what Christ has done for us. In that spirit, this morning we are going to remember uh, a little bit about our shared corporate identity as Fellowship Church. You might not know this, but there is a cornerstone in our former sanctuary that has our founding verse of this, of this congregation, Fellowship Church, and it comes from 1 John uh, 1, 3. Uh, it's right there. It's kind of buried in the little part of the old sanctuary. You can go see it after the service if you want. Uh, You can talk to me. But this morning we will remember who we are and where we came from by reciting this verse together. It will be on the screen. We declare to you what we have seen and heard so that you may, may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. In that spirit, the peace of Christ be with you, Fellowship Church. Please share a sign of Christ's peace as you are willing and able. Good morning, Fellowship. 
My name is Tiara. If I've not yet met you, and I'm one of the pastors here at Fellowship Reformed Church, and where our mission is to love God and others as an accepting community centered in Christ and focused on developing faithful followers of Jesus. Um, if you are new with us, um, if this is your first Sunday, maybe you've been here for a few Sundays and you're ready to take the next steps to get to know us more as a community, uh, would love for you to complete the connection card that looks like that. You can find them on the tables in the back near the giving bowls. Uh, there are some amazing folks over at the Welcome Center who you can give that card to. They would love to get to know you, meet you by name, um, and to tell you a little bit more about our community and how you can get connected with us. Uh, three kind of core announcements for us this morning. First, um, how many of you were here last week? A couple of you? Yeah, a thousand fellowship points for you for being here last week. Uh, on your seats, you may have heard a very enthusiastic announcement about our fellowship pulse survey last week uh, from Reverends Dieleman and Skipper. Uh, this is our second week of doing this survey. Uh, there's a card on some of the seats with you um, with a QR code that'll take you to that survey, also give you a little bit more information about it. Uh, this is essentially our way um, as pastors, as ministry staff, as consistory to take a faith pulse or spiritual pulse of our congregation to kind of see where we're at as a congregation um, and to better come alongside you um, as a congregation in your respective faith journey. So if you're high school aged and up, you can do that survey. It takes six to 14 minutes. I hear the average is about 10 minutes. Uh, You can do that survey on any mobile device. Uh, You can do a paper version of that survey if you don't have a smartphone. Uh, Maybe you have a dumb phone. I don't know. But if if you don't have a smartphone, you can actually pick up a paper copy at the Welcome Center. Um, And if you don't want to use your device, uh, you can actually head over to the southeast corner of the atrium. Get your compass. Southeast corner of the atrium. There are a couple of computers over there where you can have a cup of coffee and you can complete the survey that way, too. And once you complete the survey, which is completely anonymous, uh, you can enter your name for a drawing for fellowship swag. We're upgrading from fellowship points to fellowship swag. Uh, so, so we actually have about three winners. Several people did this form. We had about three winners for this past week. I'm going to give you the names of the winners as soon as I pull up. That's why I needed my iPad. Uh, I'll give you the names of those in just a second here. Uh, so uh, can I get a drum roll, please? Nice, nice. Uh, so the winners are uh, Laura Vanderkolk, uh, Laurel Hotchkiss, and Mary Veely. Uh, if you are here with us this morning, you can go over to the Welcome Center. There's a box of swag that you can pick from. I hear there's a very nice fleece in that, bag, in that box uh, as well. So, uh, and if you're watching us online, you can drop by at any point this week to, to raid the box too. Uh, coming in, you may have received the ministry guide. Uh, this is for the winter, spring term of activities here at Fellowship. Uh, in that ministry guide, you may have noticed the community night activities are uh, listed in there. We are kicking off community night starting this Wednesday, January 11th, um, here at Fellowship. Dinner is at 545, dinner with people uh, from the Fellowship community. Great way to connect with people, get to know some people. Uh, and there are discipleship opportunities for people of all ages. Um, including um, an an open fellowship group for people who are looking to check out groups for the first time, Uh, questions and conversations, kind of an intense exegetical Bible study uh, that will be kicking off as well. And um, joining us is a special guest who will actually be leading something really fun for us. Uh, This is Shelly Hinning, right? Shelly Hinning. Uh, Well, please welcome Shelly with us this morning. Thank you. So Shelly is our denomination's catalyst for kids and family ministry, and Shelly has been having a lot of conversation, actually, with Betsy uh, Bruins, who discovered Shelly and Shelly's work. And before we get into a little bit more of what Shelly's work is, Shelly, could you help us to get to know you a little bit better? Sure, yeah. Uh, So I am from West Michigan. I live in Granville. My husband and I have four kids, uh, ranging 14 to 24. Quite the range. Um, And then tell us a little bit more about what you've been up to for the last several years. Yeah, so I did children's ministry um, in the trenches for 20 years before I went to seminary. I got my master's in children's and family ministry and now specialize in child discipleship and faith formation. Uh, Through that, became the co-founder of Growth Rings. 
uh, which is a faith formation tool. I'm sure yeah. you have more questions about that. I do, actually. So say more about growth rings, because I heard the yeah. name and I thought, Lord of the Rings, growth rings? Like, what, is, what exactly is growth yeah. rings? Yes, so growth rings, think tree rings, just like every tree tells a story. Mm-hmm. Our faith tells a story in the same way. Mm-hmm. Um, what we thought to do was take really complicated aspects of child development and faith formation and make it simple and sustainable and understandable for parents, for grandparents, and for people right here in the congregation. Um, So whether you know it or not, if you are sitting here this morning as an adult, you are forming faith of children that are sitting in these pews. The other beautiful thing I, I have to know, because I, I leaned over to you, you're also watching faith being formed by the children sitting. And if you notice the beautiful worship that was going on over here, yeah. what a joy for me to see. That was yeah. such a blessing. I love that. I love that. So growth rings, um, child development, yeah. faith formation, is it just for small children or... Good question. Uh, Growth Rings actually is birth to age 20, but really it doesn't stop there. Uh, We talk about we're parents and we're grandparents to children of all ages. So we kind of repeat ourselves as this uh, cycle goes on. Absolutely. of all of life kind of a thing. Exactly. So you're going to be with us for six weeks during community night um, teaching a class. If you, if a person were to sign up, a parent or a grandparent or just someone who's in the covenant community of a, of a child or an adolescent or a young adult, um, and they were to sign up for this class, what would they experience during those six weeks? Yeah, so we're going to talk a lot about the state of faith. So if you read the headlines, you hear faith is declining, Christianity isn't at all-time low. Part of that has to do with generational passing on of faith. So we're going to talk about that, how we can turn the tide um, as parents and grandparents and as adults who are active in the lives of children. And then we're going to talk about these 20 years, um, how we can help to form faith in our kids in a way that, like I said, is simple, it's everyday and sustainable. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So a framework, yep. um, some cultural exegesis work, and That's also right. practical tools for people too. Yes, yeah. yes. Trying to Absolutely. make it understandable for everyone. Yeah. We are super excited that Shelly's going to be joining us um, for Wednesday nights for the next six weeks and thrilled that she could be with us this morning to help us cast some vision for this. Uh, if you have questions about growth rings, if you are interested in growth rings, even if you can't be there on Wednesday night, yeah. stop by the Welcome Center um, after the service, meet Shelly, sign up using the QR code that's on the poster. We'd love to see you there as a part of this. Uh, and please join us in just welcoming Shelly and thanking her again. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so Shelly is putting together binders. I was told, actually, uh, workbooks. She's putting together workbooks for the people who participate. So if you're interested in being a part of the class, definitely sign up so that she can prepare for you. Um, at this time, we are going to um, dismiss our kids' ages, um, whatever it says on the screen, uh, <laughs> eventually. Uh, we're going to dismiss our kids. You can follow Miss Betsy, who's right down center there, out of the room. And uh, with that, I'm going to hand things over to Reverend Dieleman. Thank you, Pastor Tierra, and Happy New Year, everyone. As we begin a new year together, so also we begin a new worship series here at Fellowship Church. You may have noticed it on the cover of your bulletin here, or if you're with us online, it's been up on the screen there. It is uh, a study of the Gospel of Matthew, which we will be in basically from Christmas all the way up until Easter. It's called The Teacher, and then there's also four subtitles there, Lord, Savior, Teacher, and Friend. For what it's worth, I've come to think of those for subtitles as being like spokes on a wheel in such a way that, as you can imagine, if you have short spokes, you have a small wheel. If you have long spokes, you have a large wheel. If you have no spokes, you have no wheel. And if you have uneven spokes, you have a lopsided wheel, a wheel that goes bump. What I want to suggest for you this morning and throughout this series is that it is good for us to picture those four spokes representing the extent to which Jesus is for us, Lord, Savior, Teacher, and Friend. You could even rate yourself on each of those on a 10 scale. And again, 
if Jesus is none of those things to you, then of course you have no spokes and no wheel. If Jesus is all of those things to you and 10 out of a 10 on a 10 scale, then you have a very large wheel. If Jesus is only some of those things to you or inconsistently each, then you have a lopsided wheel, a wheel that goes bump. Now, to be sure, as I hope you know, in the Gospels, Jesus is presented as all of these things and so much more. You could also say, however, risking oversimplification, of course, but you could also say that in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus is presented uniquely as a teacher. It is more so a teacher than in all the other Gospels. In Mark's Gospel, Jesus is presented as Lord of all. He's walking on water, casting out demons exercising authority, and rapidly so in in Mark's gospel. Luke, Jesus is presented as the Savior. In fact, in Luke's gospel, the first spoken words of Jesus in public are good news to the poor and liberty to the captives. The lost are found in the gospel of Luke. It's a uh, gospel of Jesus as Savior. And then last but not, not least, there is the Gospel of John, and that's the place where Jesus finally says to his disciples, you are no longer servants, but you are friends. It is the Gospel of intimacy. Well, today begins our journey deep into the Gospel of Matthew, and so while we find in Matthew's Gospel that Jesus is all of those things, he is especially presented as a teacher, as the teacher, as our teacher. And so I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to read our text for this morning. And after that, we're going to sing a song to center our hearts on our extended study of the Gospel of Matthew. So let's pray together. O Lord, our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I pray that today you would center us in you in such a way that your word would be our rule your spirit, our teacher, and the glory of Jesus, our only concern. For it is in his name that we pray. Amen. Listen now to the word of the Lord from the book that we love, Matthew chapter 3, all of it. And it's the first story of Jesus as an adult in Matthew's gospel. It says this, In those days, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness of Judea, proclaiming, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is the one of whom the prophet Isaiah spoke when he said, The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord and make his path straight. Now John wore clothing of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist and his food was locusts and wild honey. The people of Jerusalem and all Judea were gather, going out to him and all the region along the Jordan, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers! Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit worthy of repentance. Do not presume to say to yourself, We have Abraham as our ancestor. For I tell you, God is able from these very stones to raise up children of Abraham. Even now the axe is lying at the root of the trees, and every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, says John, but one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. And I am not worthy to carry his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. And he will clear the threshing floor and will gather his wheat into the granary. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, saying, Let it be so now, for it is proper for us in this way to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus had been baptized, just as he came up from the water, suddenly the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This 
is my son, the beloved, in whom I am well pleased. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Friends, today we join churches around the world in remembering the baptism of our Lord and Savior, teacher, and friend. And as we remember Jesus' baptism and our own baptisms and our identity as beloved children of God, and as we embark on a new worship series and embracing Jesus as our teacher, we invite you to sing with us this next song, and let's make it our prayer that our hearts would be led and taught by Jesus through his spirit. Let's sing together and invite you to stand. Thank you, band, for leading us in that prayer. And once again, good morning, friends. The Lord be with you. So, Jesus the teacher, right? How exactly does that work? How is he supposed to be my or your teacher? One of my convictions, you can take it or leave it, is that if we want to know Jesus well, then it behooves us to study those who knew him best. Since this is of utmost importance to me, I put together a slide that shows us a bit of those who know Jesus best. You're going to have to forgive the ugly arrows. It's the best I could do. Okay? But Jesus there in the blue dot and in the center of things where he belongs. And right around him, you can see a handful of the folks who definitely knew him best from his early life. His parents, Mary and Joseph. His cousin, John the Baptist. His siblings, as the Gospels suggest he had. And even some of the Gospel characters who Jesus got to know, like Nicodemus or Mary Magdalene. The circle around him is the circle of the twelve, or actually the eleven, the original disciples. Uh, Judas Iscariot is the twelfth. He's in the timeout box in the corner over there because he's the betrayer. But the other ones are in the circle there. And then on this column over here, we have the four gospel writers. 
Now, believe it or not, only two of the gospel writers were actually counted among the twelve. Do you know which two? It's already up there for you. Matthew and John were of the twelve original disciples. Mark was not. Mark is known as John Mark, and he is widely accepted to be the spokesman of Peter, the exciting disciple, if you will. He didn't write down, he didn't take enough time to write a gospel, so Mark did. Luke, Dr. Luke, was known to be a traveling companion of the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul had his own kind of independent encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus. And they learn together, and then Dr. Luke gathers his information and writes his own gospel. These are at least some of the people who knew Jesus best. But our task for today and for the next few weeks or months together is to consider the one called Matthew and his gospel. I have five standard questions for us today. The questions are who, what, where, when, and why. The ones that we're used to, starting with who. If you open your Bible to the beginning of the New Testament, you're going to encounter a phrase that says, the gospel, according to Matthew. It looks a bit like that. And that means what it says, that there is a gospel, one gospel, the gospel. And then that story is told by a handful of folks, including one called Matthew. Well, who in the world is Matthew? In Matthew's gospel, his story is told in chapter 9. He's a disciple of Jesus, but he was a tax collector first. And he gives up everything, a costly decision to follow Jesus. Some modern renditions of who, what he might have looked like, these are of course estimations only, would be ones like these. Over on this side you have this kind of questionable looking character, a scoundrel if you will. Uh, he is a tax collector on this side. I love the look on his face there. You don't want to trust that guy. He looks really shady. The next one over is from the show The Chosen, if you've seen it. And he's presented as young and kind of quirky and even possibly on the autism spectrum. Still further over, he's much older, and he looks to be like a jolly fellow who is winsome and influential there. And then the last one's from the cover of a very scholarly commentary, and they want to present him, of course, as a recluse scholar type and the brilliant mind who bridges the gap from the Old Testament to the New. Did he look like any of these or something entirely different? We don't really know. But what we do know... We know that Matthew was a tax collector in Capernaum, and he probably even collected taxes from some of the other disciples, Peter, James, and John, which would have made for an awkward relationship among them when they became disciples of Jesus. We know about Matthew that as a tax collector, he was part of the Jewish people of God, but a despised part. He was pushed off to the side. He was considered a moral equivalent to the Herodians and the harlots perhaps the most uh, uh, recognizably sinner of the, of the original 12 disciples. We know that Matthew does not speak at all in all of the Gospels, but we do know also that after he was called to follow Jesus, he threw a party and he invited all of his friends who just so happened to be tax collectors and sinners. And Jesus went to that party and got in trouble for going to it. We know that Matthew seems to have lived another 20 or 30 or even 40 years after Jesus died on the cross. And he went on, of course, to write a gospel which became the most loved gospel of the early church. And according to church tradition, Matthew eventually died a martyr's death, possibly even murdered while preaching. All of this is to say, perhaps an application for all of us even now is to take courage, whoever you are, because if Matthew of all people, can be so radically transformed and become so radically influential, so also can you, so also can I. Next major question of the day is what? This one's relatively simple. It's right there at the top of the book. Again, it's a gospel, and it is the gospel according to Matthew. A gospel, in case you do not know, is most basically the story of the Christ event, his life, death, and resurrection. And the term gospel itself simply means good news. So if it doesn't sound like good news to you yet, you probably haven't heard it right just yet. And the gospel of Matthew is his story 
of the Christ event. And, and of course, each gospel writer tells the story a little differently. And so I made another chart for you about this. Gospel comparative by chapter count. Matthew's story has the most chapters, 28 chapters. Luke is actually longer by verse count, just so happens to be. And Mark is the shortest by quite a bit. All of these gospel writers converge the most. They have the most similarities in the section up there that is orange and red. The events of Holy Week, Jesus' trial, his crucifixion, and eventually his resurrection from the dead. They're the most different in the blue space, which are the birth narratives. You can see Mark doesn't even have one. In John's gospel, it's cosmic and goes back to the beginning or before time even existed. Matthew tells the story of the Magi. No one else does. Luke tells the story that is in all of our favorite Christmas carols, the story of the angels and the shepherds and the innkeeper who had no room. But in the green, sorry, one, go back one more time. In green right there, we have, uh, we have what is perhaps each of the gospel writers' most unique emphases, the way that they tell their story with their own priorities. And if we look closely at Matthew, we see that he has at least three, more of course two, but I'll name three today, things that are worth paying attention to as you study the book throughout the next few weeks and months. Fulfillment, teaching, and sending. First, fulfillment. Matthew's gospel includes over 50 direct Old Testament quotations. And then another 260 plus allusions to the Old Testament. That's more than all the other gospels combined. Matthew wants us to notice that what God is up to in the person and work of Jesus Christ is a continuation and fulfillment of what God has been up to all along. So I wore a bow tie on purpose already today, and, and this is a representative, a very simplified re- representation of all of Scripture, which begins really big and ends really big. All things, all creation, all nations, all people, all things at the end, and Jesus is right there at the center. The Old Testament is really a story of decline, of decreasing faithfulness, and then eventually 400 years of silence. And then comes Christ, who is the fulfillment of all things. The second Moses, the establishment of a new Israel. And from him, things begin to expand back outwards and go back towards what it was supposed to be all along. It's like a bow tie. So you should wear bow ties, that's what I think. The point of all of this, of course, is not successful prediction, like palm reading, or like trying to guess what the future might be. Yay, we got it right. It's much more an emphasis on how God has been faithful from the start and sticking with all of it now, especially in the fresh expression of Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth. That's fulfillment. Second major thing I hope you notice in the gospel is teaching. This is perhaps the most obvious theme that shows up in Matthew's gospel. Over 60% of his gospel is the story of Jesus teaching. The whole book is arranged around five major teaching blocks. And these teaching blocks actually don't move the narrative forward. There's a geographical narrative. He's moving from place to place. But these blocks are times in which Jesus just stops and teaches. It's almost as if they are there more for us, the readers, than the original audience at that particular time. One commentator, I like the way they say it, they say that the five discourses are undoubtedly the most conspicuous structural marker in the gospel. And so we have these five. Number one, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' most famous one, ethical teaching. Number two, the sending sermon, Matthew 10. Number three, the kingdom parables, Jesus' favorite subject, the kingdom of heaven, and his favorite mode of teaching, parables. Number four is the sermon to the church. Believe it or not, Matthew is the only of all the gospels who mentions the word church at all. He is very interested in you, in us, in this life that we have together. And Matthew chapter 18 is about how to do that well. And the last sermon is the sermon on last things or the Olivet Discourse in the, in the uh, near end chapters of his gospel. All of these taken together help us realize the importance of teaching and of being taught. So look at this quote from Dallas Willard. It's worth it, I think. He says, we humans are the kind of beings that have to be taught. Whether it's to play the piano or to play tennis 
or to live. We learn first from our parents and then from other folks around us, our co-workers, our bosses, and our culture. The difficulty is that we don't think of ourselves as having to learn how to live. And so we never ask ourselves the question, who has mastered life? Who is worthy of being the teacher that I sit under? Many people today think of Jesus as our Savior, as the one who will get us to heaven. And so the question often is, have I accepted Jesus as my Savior? But we rarely ask the question, have I accepted Jesus as my teacher? And that's the real question. With the disciples, it began there. They began by accepting him as their teacher. Then they accepted him as their Savior, which includes, of course, their eternal destiny. But they started with Jesus as their teacher because we all have to learn how to live. So important is this emphasis on teaching in Matthew's gospel that one of the most renowned scholars of today, N.T. Wright, has said about Matthew's gospel, he says, the five major discourses in Matthew's gospel function as something of a manifesto for the church, outlining its vocation, its mission, its way of life, and its hopes. The discourses define the way of righteousness that should characterize kingdom people. It is above all a teaching book about how to be a follower of Jesus. Don't we say that in our mission statement every week that we want to be faithful followers of Jesus? Matthew is a good place to start with that. It's a book of fulfillment. It's a book of teaching. And of course, it's also a book of sending. You heard me say already one of the major teaching blocks is the sending sermon where Jesus sends out his disciples And also Matthew's gospel is the one in which we find the Great Commission, where he sends out his disciples to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and instructing them to teach. Go figure. These are common occurrences in Matthew's gospel. Hopefully you'll see them as you continue to read and study. Let's get to the question of when. And this one we can actually do rather quickly because the, the short answer is we don't know. We don't know exactly when the, the gospel was written. Scholars love to debate it. I would say it's approximately 70 A.D., give or take a decade. What matters more than the exact date is the nature of the things that were happening at that time. One person, one scholar, has summarized it really well in a simple phrase. He says, it was a period of uncomfortable tension. Sound familiar? Feel like life today? For them, it was a period of tension because the people were Jewish Christians. These are the ones that Matthew is writing to, but they were stuck in a love-hate relationship with Judaism. They were simultaneously insiders and outsiders. As Jews, they were insiders. As believers in Jesus, they were outsiders. And so they are kind of continually stuck asking the question put forth by the rock band, The Clash. Should I stay or should I go? Over and over again. Importantly, Matthew is not suggesting a brand new Christianity, a brand new world religion. He's actually suggesting something more like a Judeo-Christian tradition one of the earliest advocates of it. And the all-important question for them then, his community, his gospel, and even for us still today, is this. In light of Jesus, what things can stay the same? And in light of Jesus, what things must change? Friends, if you today are in a period of uncomfortable tension, you're in good company. It's a common thing. And Jesus, the teacher, has always been, from the very beginning, and even still now, he's been in the business of comforting the afflicted and afflicting the comfortable. We should expect nothing less, even today. The next big question is where? And at this point, I'm going to offer something. It's a repeat. I've said this to you before at least twice. So I'm not trying for novelty here. But I want to invite you to envision, pretend that you left church today and shortly up the road you came into a crash, a three-car pileup that happened at the intersection of Lakewood and River. You can picture it happening there, right? Screeching tires and busting glass and and an event of of consequential, consequential impact on at least a few people. 
You can also imagine that if it were to happen there, there would likely to be witnesses, perhaps even witnesses on the four corners of that intersection, someone by the barbecue shack, someone by the car wash, and so forth. Each witness would naturally see that crash, that incident, from a different perspective. They would see it from their viewpoint, which is a view from a point. They would see it as different individuals, people with different pasts and different priorities. And then they would likely go from that and go tell other people that they love about what happened in that place. And they would tell it a little bit differently again based on the people that they're telling it to, their concerns, their passions. Well, the gospel is a bit like that. Certainly, the car, three-car pileup is Jesus and the Roman Empire and the religious authorities of the day. But the way that the gospel writers go out and tell it is a little bit different, and it actually looks a bit like an intersection, if you will. So, you can see up here, the star is where Matthew was writing his gospel, in and to Antioch of Syria, a dominantly Jewish audience. The square is Mark, who wrote, possibly from Alexandria in Egypt, certainly towards Rome, towards Gentiles in Rome. Luke wrote in into Greece, to a dominantly Hellenistic audience. And John is known to have written in Ephesus, and with a a universal readership behind him. Again, I think this is important for us today, to recognize that the gospel from its very beginning has been contextualized. It is not merely generic claims of timeless truths. It's a specific word to specific people, kind of like you and kind of like me. And it matters that kind of locally. The last big question that I want to examine with you this morning, however, is why And this one might even be the most important. Why did Matthew write this gospel? In Matthew chapter 13, verse 52, which for fun might be the exact center. I don't know. I didn't have time to count, but it's a 28-chapter book. And chapter 13, verse 52 might be really close to the exact center. There is a, a word that is put on the very lips of Jesus, and it might be the why of Matthew. It says in that particular verse that every scribe, picture Matthew, one who's writing stuff down now, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is old and what is new. If you remember the text we read this morning, Matthew chapter 3, it is precisely that kind of story. And you see this scribal strategy enacted. John the Baptist represents the old. He is the last and the best of the old. Jesus of Nazareth is the first and the greatest of the something new. And these things, while they seem to be opposites, you may have noticed in the reading of the text that they feel like polar opposites. They are put side by side in Matthew's gospel and kept that way. Really, a text of rigor, John the Baptist, and a text of welcome, Jesus baptism. So for the sake of demonstration, I want to divide our congregation in half today, split you right here into these two sides. This is just a demonstration. I actually think division is heresy, so no, this is just a demonstration, okay? But let's pretend that you guys over here represent the rigorous types. You are the champions of rigor, kind of like John the Baptist. And you guys over here are the champions of welcome, Okay, kind of like Jesus' baptism unfolds. If you pay attention to churches and to Christians today, you'll notice that we have a pretty strong tendency to pick one or the other and ignore the opposite. So on the rigorous side, over here, give me a little finger wag and a... Yeah, that's that's what we do on the rigorous side. And over here, we acknowledge together that the bar is high, that grace is not cheap, that the Jesus way is a narrow way, and that the cost of discipleship is everything. So shape up or ship out, okay? 
if you search your scriptures from start to finish, you're going to find plentiful support for this perspective on this side. You'll find the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament and alongside that, another 613 other commands. You're going to find fiery prophets. You're going to find in the New Testament lists of virtues and of vices. And you're going to even hear Jesus say in one of his famous sermons, he's going to say, be perfect as my heavenly father is perfect. Rigor. Okay. Over here, you guys are the welcoming types. Give me a big welcome. Like, come on over. Okay. Over here, you are the ones who are recognizing that the invitation is wide open, that God's love is big and that Jesus is for all. So please come and join us. Once again, you're going to recognize on this side, you're going to find support in the scriptures from start to finish. You're going to have in the Old Testament the command to love your neighbor. You're going to have also the command to welcome the stranger. In the New Testament, you're going to have that expanded to include loving enemies and praying for those who persecute you. You're going to have the story of Peter in Acts chapter 10 where he is given a vision to include the Gentiles, even the Gentiles. And then you're going to have Paul in Romans chapter 14 saying to the Christians in Rome, he says, accept and accommodate the one whose faith is weak. And even Jesus, of course, again, in Matthew's gospel is the one who says, come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Now, as I'm doing these, you might already be wanting to switch sides, right? So if over here I'm pushing all the rigorous things and you're saying, yeah, 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 but... What about grace? Well, then maybe you belong over on this side. And if you're over here and you're hearing all these great words of welcome and you're saying, yeah, 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 but what about truth? Well, then maybe you lean over towards this particular side. Well, what I want you to notice today is that in our text, in Matthew chapter 3, we have both a text of rigor set right alongside a text of welcome. John the Baptist is rigorous. His message is repent or else. He mentions fire three times over and he pictures the Messiah as having a winnowing fork ready to separate the one from the other. And then there comes Jesus. And Jesus shows that the whole tone seems to change of the text. And there's Jesus. And he says, let's do this in order to fulfill all righteousness. And then he goes on to hear a voice from heaven which offers the best words of welcome ever offered to Jesus at his baptism and through him to us at our baptism saying, this is my beloved, one in whom I am well pleased. Welcome, welcome, welcome. So which one is it? In our binary world, are we supposed to be people of rigor or people of welcome? The answer is both. Bingo. Well done. Both are biblical. And the gospel, according to Matthew, is a gospel of rigor and a gospel of welcome. And the invitation is not to pick one and defeat the other, but actually to embrace both. Today, the church goes off the rails if it becomes all rigor and no welcome, or all welcome and no rigor. Jesus, keep reading in Matthew's gospel, and Jesus will soon repeat John's rigorous call to repentance, and Jesus will soon deeply offend by welcoming in the otherwise unwelcomed ones. Whichever side stretches you the most today is probably the one that you need to pay attention to in Matthew's gospel. If I put it into big church words, it's justification and sanctification. He came to justify the most unjustifiable, and his sanctification is for all the ones that he justifies. No exceptions. That's rigorous. Or, if you turn even just to the first red letters in Matthew's Gospel, the first words of Jesus spoken, he says simply that he came to fulfill all righteousness for us that's welcome and in us that's rigor that friends i think is the first message of jesus the teacher 
And the question of the day is whether you will let him be your teacher now. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Friends, in our response this morning, we will sing together of the perfect one, the one that we will behold, and as we behold him, we become more like him. Let's stand and sing together. across the 
Friends, as you go from this place to behold the one who is our Lord and Savior and teacher and friend, may the grace of the Lord Jesus and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you always.